Welcome to the Vineyard Church Podcast. If you're looking to find your true self, you'll have to understand that your real identity is one that's received and not achieved. In life as it was meant to be, Myron takes us back to God's original design for our lives and provides an understanding of who we are and whose we are in week two of our series in Genesis called In the Beginning. Here's Myron. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back as we continue our study through the book of Genesis. And uh, we're going to be going through the second chapter of Genesis. But before we get into that, I want to recap a little bit of chapter one to set kind of the foundation because there's a question we all need to answer. And I think all of humanity will answer this question at one point in time. When we get to a, a point of intellectual understanding, we'll wrestle with, am I here by accident or am I here on purpose? Was this just a big bang happening by chance or was there an actual intelligent designer and creator behind it? And so that foundational question has to be answered because then the rest of our life and how we express ourselves and how we interact with the world and our marriages and raise our kids and our occupation and everything about life stems from that foundational question. So it's pivotal that we have an understanding and, 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 and a truth about who we are and more importantly, whose we are. And so we're going to study the book of Genesis and go back to the beginning to see our origin story, to answer that fundamental and that foundational question that the rest of our life can really be built around. Because if I look at our culture and, and if we look at our culture, we're like, it seems like chaos and confusion and people don't know who they are. We're insecure. We're fearful. We're depressed. We're anxious. We have no idea what's upside down or what everything's upside down. I don't know what's right side up. And it's just chaos. So let's go back to the beginning, back to the origin of who we are, more importantly, whose we are, where our identity lies. And I think the book of Genesis is a book about identity. Now, it does contain about 2,000 years of human history, and it's chock full of all of that. But I really think the intent of God through the author of Moses, who, who was you know, hearing from God and writing this down to deliver it to the, the nation of Israel, God's people, was a book about identity, not about the what and the why and the how necessarily, but about who, grounding them and who they are, a chosen people made in the image of God on purpose, for a purpose, and here's the life that he wants them to live. And it's just kind of ironic that the nation of Israel had, had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Now, that's like five to six generations of families. You're talking like great, 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 great grandpas all the way down to great, 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 great grandkids. All they have known is slavery. And they might begin to think, what was me? That's just how I'm wired. That's just how I was raised. It's just how I was brought up. That's just me. It's the reality of my situation. And they finally get set free. Moses delivers them. They're on their way to the promised land that God has kind of set aside for them to inhabit. And they're on this journey. And Moses, talking to God, instructed to write and, and writing these things down to bring it to this group of people whose identity has been hijacked for 400 years. He's saying, let's get back to who you are. Let's fundamentally and foundationally understand who you are. And I think that's what this whole entire book is about. And if, we're, and if we really look in it, we'll see this is what our whole entire life is about and what it can be built on. And so I want to backtrack uh, into chapter one, verse 26 to 28, and just look at when he made mankind, when he made humanity, because God is speaking things into existence, the birds, the stars, the sun, the moon, the plants, the animals, the ground, the water, all that. And then he says, hey, let's make mankind in our image, picking up in verse 26 of chapter one. Then God said, let, make, let's make man, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that we may 
so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. If we couldn't be repetitive enough to make sure you got it, you're made in my image. Like you are distinct. You are going to be set apart from any other living creature or thing in creation that he created. You are different. You are distinct, male and female. In God's image, they were created. And now these two different male and female are very different and distinct on purpose, but their value and their worth is still in the image of God of equal value in his image. There's not superiority and inferiority between the two. They're made in the image of God, two very different they are. They're absolutely different. I have, I have one of each in my house as kids, and they're very different, and, the, and they should be. But the, and our culture is like trying to confuse and redefine what masculinity and femininity is, and the lines are getting muddy and blurry, and we're not sure. But in the beginning, God created in his own image, male and female, XX, XY. They're different, and they're distinct on purpose for a purpose. But they have the same value and the same worth in God's eyes. And I think about this idea of made in his image. What does that mean? What's the implications, right? With, with, compare, with comparison to the rest of creation, we have intellectual understanding and ability to think and reason. We have the ability to feel and connect with emotions like love and bonding to other people. We have the ability to understand right and wrong and kind of this uh, unwritten code on our heart of a moral compass where we know innately things are right and wrong. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. We're not little gods. We're not a bunch of demigods. Like, no, we are made in the image. We are a vessel or a vehicle to reflect the very nature and character of God himself. And that's who we are. We're made distinct and different, male and female, in the image of God with the intellectual ability to understand, to feel, to reason, to logic, and to create and to do and to build and all of these things that God is, his character and his nature is represented in us. His image is pressed on us. And so then he, he makes male and female and they're naked and it's amazing. They're in the garden. And he says to them, the first command to the people, to, to Adam and Eve, were be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Roll over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves across the ground. And in the beginning of chapter two, God's going to say, I'm going to go rest. You know, I created all this in six days. I'm about to go rest. So man and woman, naked, enjoying it. You know, you got a day. Have the weekend, you know, figure this thing out. I've designed this. I've made this, you know, like I'll check back with you Monday, see how it's going. And this beautiful gift of man and woman creation is complete in this moment. And so I want to start here because foundationally and fundamentally, we have to understand the person that we were meant to be. Because from that stems our view of life, our worldview, and how we express ourselves and engage in what truth is in reality for our day and age. And so my first point is this. The person that you were meant to be is, number one, don't forget this. Don't miss this. God created us in his image. You are created in his, <clears throat> in his image. And more important than being created in his image, the way in which he formed us and the way in which he formed mankind or humanity, human beings, is so different than the rest of the way he created every other living creature. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 says this, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Do you see the distinct difference in how he created everything else versus how he created mankind? 
He was just speaking and saying, hey, make this happen, make this happen. This creature, this bird, this thing, this plant, this tree, the stars, the moon, everything was just spoken and it was. But when it came to man, he said, I'm gonna take a little bit more time. I'm actually gonna form you. I'm actually gonna shape you. And the distinguishing factor really is he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and that is when the man became a living being. Not just speaking and saying, and it was so, breathing. And that word breath is rucka, which actually is the word used when talking about the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> talking about the whole the Holy Spirit and how it would come upon people and fill people, rucka. So I believe the spirit of God, the, the, the God, the image of God is breathed into humanity. And that's where life began for all of human beings. We are distinctly different. We're made in the image of God. And then after he's, you know, he, he, God's speaking everything in existence and then he forms the man and breathes his breath into him. He's like, this is very good. This is good. And so this idea of, Creation, of creation, man and woman, humanity, human beings are the pinnacle of his creation. That's my second point we got to understand. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. It wasn't when he made the whales in the ocean, like, man, that's amazing, or formed the mountains or the, you know, the, the Grand Canyon style landscape. Yeah, that's the pinnacle. No, none of that. You and I, human beings of, of incredible value, more so than anything else, is the pinnacle of God's creation. And he's given us rule and reign and dominion over all the birds and all the creatures that rule and, and all the land and the tenure, uh, you know, take care of it and tend to it and cultivate it. He's given us that. That's our rule in this life. But we are superior than any other creation in the creation account. But that doesn't give us an excuse to abuse creation. It doesn't give us an excuse to think all oh, pride and ego, it's all for me, my selfish wants, my selfish gain, my selfish desires, and we abuse and neglect being good stewards of God's creation. Genesis 9, we'll get there, talks a little bit more about that, how we can be good stewards. But we are the pinnacle of his creation. We're made in his image. We have infinite value, extreme value. And I want to give you this illustration to help you understand this. Is This is a, a penny, right? What's its value? One cent. One cent. And now if I, if I bite this and try to bend it and I step on it and I take a wire brush and I scuff it and I run it through dog poop and I do whatever I want to do. And God knows where some of these things have been and how dirty these, some of these things are and how scuffed up some of these things are. You know what I can still do with it? Go get a Tootsie Roll. Used to. Still worth one cent. Its value is not determined by what it's been through or what it's experienced or what it's been done to it. And there are a lot of copper coins that have, are in circulation in, def, in different countries and different you know, currencies. But how do we know that this one is one cent in U.S. currency? It's got Abraham Lincoln pressed on it. There's an image pressed on this coin that secures its value of one cent. And the same thing is true for you and I, made in the image of God. His image is pressed on us and our value is fixed. No matter what's happened, no matter what we've been through, no matter the horrific things that you've done or someone else has done, the way you've been treated or mistreated, your value has not changed at all. It's fixed in God's eyes, all of humanity is fixed in God's eyes. It's not about how much you achieve and how much money you make, about how many accolades you have and all the success and influence. None of that is determining your identity and your value in God's eyes. My daughter, she loves coins, in particular quarters. 
And the reason I think she loves quarters is because she can have a transaction with this quarter and put it in a gumball machine and turn it and get a gumball out and satisfies a desire of sugar and it just, it tastes good. And so then one time, uh, her great-grandfather, uh, when she was getting in the car to leave and as a great-grandfather's do, slips her a 20 and says, here, $20 bill. And she looks at him with all sincerity in her eyes and says, can I have, can I have coins? <laughs> can I have coins? And he's trying to explain to her the value of money. He's like, well, no, this is like better than coins. And she's like, no, I think I want, I want coins. She means a quarter. And I try to explain to her, I was like, baby, I, I know this gets you one gumball, but this is 80 gumballs, okay? Like, this is way better. And this is exactly how God views us. Our value is significantly more than what we settle for. Because this is what he's calling us to and saying, this is what's true about you. This is who I made you to be. But we have a transactional mindset and what I can produce and provide and satisfy earthly desires. That's what I cash in on and think that's my worth. And it's not true. This is what he's calling you to. And the same thing with this, like this is a value. And if I crinkle this up, right? And do you still want this $20 bill? Yeah, probably. How about now? Right? How about now if I wipe my butt with it? Like, what, I mean, I'm going to do some dirty stuff, put this in dog poop, and I unroll it, and it's been through a lot, and we see the wrinkles and the scars. Do you still want this 20? Yeah, it's a lot of money. It still has a worth of 20. And that's exactly how God views you. Your worth is fixed on Him, your identity is in Him, your value is extraordinarily valuable. So don't forget that. That's foundational to whose you are and what he thinks about you. And so he created in the six days he spoke, he created, he formed the man and he formed the woman and he said it was good. In six days he did that. And then you know what he did? The beginning of chapter two, it says he rested. Do you think God was all tuckered out and tired and exhausted from, from creating all that? No, he's infinite. He's all powerful. He, he, he's not gonna, he's not, he has infinite energy. He's never gonna be tired. But I think he's doing what every good father and every good parent does is he realizes, hey, be careful what you say and do and what you model for your kids. Because they are sponges and they will pick up and they will mimic you like you don't even realize what they pick up on. And there was a phrase that got said by one of my kids one time and me and Emily went, where did you learn that? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Started the point match, like, I don't and it makes you examine yourself and go, yeah, be careful about how you model and what you say and what you do because they pick up on it. And I think God, before he's going to give us a command to work, before he's about to give us a command to work and working is part of us, it's part of who we were made to be, he's gonna model rest. And I love that about our God. I'm gonna model rest before I even give you a command to work because I'm trying to be a good heavenly father, setting the example for you of how important it is to pull away from progress and success and being driven and ambitious and achieving things and just step back and say, it's good. Look at what I've done. Look at what I have. Be grateful for all that you have in the six days that you were able to accomplish and rest on that day. So he modeled it. He modeled rest. And I think he modeled rest because he realized that, especially for us guys, I think, is our identity would get wrapped up in our work of what we could produce a transactional relationship. This is my value, what I can provide, turn the dial and receive something and what I can contribute to society and to our world. People's approval and acceptance of me is wrapped up in what I can provide. And I would say that's a lie that the enemy wants us to believe that our identity is not in our work and God's saying, pull away. Yes, create, yes, work, yes, do that. It's part of who you are, but it's not everything of who you are. 
and your identity cannot be wrapped in your work and pull away and rest. And it's just one day a week. It was called a Sabbath. They, they did it on Saturdays is where they kind of implemented this. And, and then we switched it to a Sunday. And then they said, we know we're going to take Saturdays off too and get two days. And that was awesome. But now in the American culture of greed and more, we have a 24-7 work culture. Go, 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 go. Never stop, never rest. But God modeled it because he knows that our identity will be wrapped up in our work and what we can provide. And your identity is not in that. It's fixed in what he says about you. And so there is a call to work. And then we see it in Genesis 2.15 after God created everything and he formed the man. And he's like, I'm going to put you in the garden. And in verse 15, it says, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. There is a call. We are made in the image of a creator God. And part of that is to go and create, to go and do, to have progress, to achieve something, step back like he did and go, that is good. And then continually do it again. That's why I think us guys, and I think everybody, tinkers. I got 12 projects around my house that I've never finished. I'm always doing something. That's why we got wood shops and, and the man caves. That's why we got the, you know, the auto body shop out in our garage. And that's why we want to mow the grass. I love mowing the grass. I kind of dread it before I do it. But then when I do it and get done and look at it and go, man, the lines are sharp. It's Chris. Look at what I created. Look how beautiful that looks. And the sense of pride comes in, a good pride of like, look at what I did and what I created. We were made in the image of a creator God to create. So the life that you were meant to live, we were created to work with God. The Bible talks a lot about laziness and sluggishness and none of it's ever really any good. We were made in the image of a creator God to create, to work, and to be great stewards over everything in this life that he's given us to. And he's inviting us to join him in our occupation, in our career, in our everyday life, to do everything as unto him, to glorify his name, and for us to experience the joy that he wants to give us because of that. Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul kind of sums it up this way. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serf, serving. Everything you do, doctor's office, mow your grass, you know, have your clients or start your business or run your law firm or teach your classroom, whatever it is, do it as unto the Lord to serve him. Because he's wired you, he's gifted you, he's allowed that opportunity in your life and you're serving him, not human masters. And the way we conduct our lives and our business and our occupations and our personal world and all the things that we have to steward and navigate, how well we do that will correlate to a reward that we will receive one day because we are serving Christ, not human masters. We were made to create. We were made to work hard with all of our heart but do it with the right ambition and right desire of glorifying his name. And you know what fires me up the most is I don't have the privilege of hanging out with a bunch of, how do I politely say this? People who don't follow Jesus. I don't have that luxury. I'm around Christians a lot. I'm counseling, mentoring, and pouring into and discipling Christians. But you know who some of the greatest missionaries are on the face of the planet, especially in America? The modern day American workforce where you are with the American dream and drive and greed and ambition and love of money and self and ego, you can be a light to those people right where you are, right where you're placed with the skills and the abilities that God's calling you to work as unto him, living by his principles and loving people radically and where they're drawn to him by the way you conduct yourself on a daily basis in your workplaces, in your businesses, with your clients, with your occupation. And so do that as unto the Lord with 
all of your heart to serve him and to make him known. Invite him in because you were made to create and made to work and have progress, but invite him and stay in line with him in that. And I, I want to talk to the young crowd for a second about video games and parents too. I think video games have hijacked the creativity of young people. Minecraft blowing up. Like people love Minecraft and it's amazing because you can build a virtual world. It's kind of cool. The desire to create is in all of us because we're made in the image of a creator. And that's kind of scratching that itch. And then we don't really go outside and create or we don't perform in other areas or create other things because that kind of satisfies our niche. I'm not anti-video games. I'm just saying it might be nice for us to not let that be the sole thing that desire or satisfies our desire to create and to build and to have progress and accolades and achievements to have moderation in it, to then go and do something that actually going to benefit people, love people, serve people, and make Jesus more famous and more known by our efforts. Because we were given everything in this life to steward. And that's the second point about the life that you were meant to live is one, created to God or created by God to work with God. And we were given stewardship over all of this creation. Everything was made for his glory and for our joy to be experienced. And so that means we should care about the turtles. We should care about the environment. We should care about different things when it's in line with God and what he's calling us to. But we cannot value that over a relationship with him and what he's calling us to. And so he takes Adam, he places him in the garden and says, hey, I need you to work this. I need you to cultivate the soil and the land and, and receive the crops and farm it and, and do the landscaping, cut the grass and make this place look beautiful. And then in part of that, Adam's in the garden and all the animals get paraded in front of him and he has the privilege of naming the animals. I think that's so cool. And I wonder, man, why do you think of that name? It's crazy. And in this, there's, there's, there's all these animals and he's noticing as he's naming them, probably that there's a couple birds in the nest over here. There's a couple animals, you know, over here doing what animals do, nature, you know, taking over. And he's standing there going, there's not really anybody for me. And this is the first time in all of creation that something is not good. And it was when man was alone, verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so Adam falls asleep or God puts him to sleep and takes a rib out and forms the woman out of that rib and then brings the woman to Adam, and I'm, I could just imagine Adam's jaw just dropping like, oh, oh my gosh, eyes wide. You're extraordinary. You're, you're, you're beautiful. And he brought her, brought her to him, and now he has a suitable helper for him. And when God did this, he stepped back and said, this was very good. Like he always said it was good. He would make, he would speak, it was good. And then he said, oh, this was not good. Then he made the woman and brought him together and said, this is very good. Now my creation is complete. It is done. And so I think there's a tendency when we see this word helper that the feminism ideology kind of creeps up and says, what do you mean? I'm, I'm second best? I was an afterthought? I'm simply just like a, like, a, like a companion to the man? I'm inferior to the man? And I would say, no, not at all. If you think about it, very good. Creation is complete. It was not good because you weren't there, ladies. And thank God that we have women. And it completes creation. It completes humanity. And it's this beautiful picture of two different, distinct, yet equal of value. Chapter one, made in the image of God, male and female. It's not inferiority at all. 
And actually that word helper is used to describe the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the one who will come alongside of Jesus' followers and teach you and guide you into all truth. And so you're likened to that incredible attribute of God himself through the Holy Spirit as being a helper, completing humanity. Don't let anybody ever use the Bible, ladies, to tell you that you're inferior. It's not. You read the totality of scripture. You go to Jesus's ministry where he broke down social and cultural norms and elevated women to make sure they knew that they were of equal value and inclusion in his ministry. You're not inferior. It's equal of value, but we are different and distinct for a reason in the design. And so the naked man and the naked woman are standing there in awe of one another and the first marriage happens. The wedding ceremony takes place in the garden. Beautiful, I could imagine it. And they come together, and this is what it says in Genesis 2, 24, talking about marriage. It says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the bond of marriage. A male and a female will come together Sex as is, is a bonding agent, the consummation, the covenant agreement before God is made between a man and a woman. These two distinct parts now become one whole. Like the, you're no longer two individual parts, but now you're fused together spiritually, emotionally, physically. It's a supernatural glue that happens in this moment between a man and a woman. And they were naked and they were unashamed and they were not afraid. And so The last thing I want to talk about, once we know whose we are, where our identity comes from, everything else flows from that. And we were made to work and create and have progress and accolades, but it cannot become our identity. It'll become an idol that we may worship. And then the final thing is a a highlighting a relationship that humanity had a gift that God gave us, and it's called marriage. And so I want to look at the marriage that we were meant to have between a man and a woman his prized creation, the pinnacle of creation, two equals coming together to form a bond unlike any other bond on the face of the planet. And so the first thing I want us to understand about marriage is the marriages that you were meant to have is God is the creator and sustainer of sex and marriage. He created it. He designed it. He designed the parts, the nerve endings, the way it works and forms and feels. It was his idea and it was good. It was very good when he brought them together. And a lot of times in church, I know my upbringing, it was always, it was bad, it was gross, don't talk about it, taboo. And the reason that I think we've shifted in that way is because of all the pain and all the hurt and all the baggage that you and I carry with it. If I was to sit down with you and trace back some of the deepest scars and pains and regrets that you have, I guarantee most of us it would trace back to some type of sexual interaction that was not good, that was painful because it was outside of marriage. Sometimes it's inside marriage, but there's a lot of pain wrapped up around it. So we just want to kind of shove it down, not talk about it. And it gets hijacked with society and culture and manipulated and definitions and words matter. And it's been hijacked of what marriage and what sex actually is, but it is a gift from God himself, the designer and author and creator of it. And fusing two people together in the bond of marriage where sex is free to be expressed and enjoyed. And anything outside of that is an act of rebellion against God's design, which we would call sin. Anything outside of sex, inside of marriage between a man and a woman is a rebellion against God's design and therefore it is sin. But definitions matter. Words matter. 
And when I look at our, our modern state of our, our culture, it seems like marriage has been hijacked and we've tried to redefine it. You know what? We have rule and, and dominion over the land and the sea creatures and the creatures of the air. You know what we don't have rule and dominion over? Our gender identity and what we say is true. No, we don't have rule and reign and dominion over to redefine marriage to fit what I want and what I desire. We don't have that right. God does. He defined it. He created it. And this is what he has designed to be the purpose and intent. And any expression outside of that is not of God and therefore is sin. And the problem with this is it's a loaded topic. It's a loaded conversation. I know that. It's because us and our finite human brains have classified sins. We have. It's kind of like this. Let me give you a visual. All right, if you would stand at New York City, at the cityscape across the water, you would look and you would see all kinds of different buildings and structures of widths and heights and varying architecture types. And that's exactly what we do with sin. We say, well, that's a bigger sin. Like that building's way tall. Like that one's really bad. That one's like really explicitly talked about in scripture. So therefore it's like really severe. And these other ones aren't quite as severe. So we don't really want to talk about or correlate the two. And, 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 what, and, and I think the reason we do this is because we experience the consequences of sin have very different varying degrees of consequences. Some sins are going to pierce and hurt a lot more and be harder to forgive and get over and heal from. That's just true about reality because of what has happened to us. But in God's eyes, like this image from NASA space station, looking down at New York City, there isn't a leveling vary of degree of what sin is more grave or more intense or more severe in God's eyes. They're all equal. We all fall short. Sin has plagued all of us and we, des we don't deserve God. And it doesn't matter how tall that building is that we want to classify. It's about looking down from God's point of view. Sin exists and sin separates, period. But we want to highlight and classify certain sins and then it gets really, it feels like it's intentional and it's attacking me and my person and my identity when it's really not. Like we need to talk about all the sins. They're all equal, right? And, and then we trace this idea of, you know, same-sex attraction or homosexuality or gay marriage and redefining it and what is a boy, what is masculinity, what is femininity, and it all gets rewired and we're trying to come back to the beginning and say, no, this is what it was intended to be and we don't have the right to distort and manipulate that. But I understand it's hard. And so then we get in the conversation of, well, well you know, was I, I was born this way, or this is just who I am. Think about the, the uh, Israelites enslaved in Egypt. That's just who I was. That's just the way that I was wired, the way that I was brought up. That was the formation of my life. And God wants to say to all of us, this is who you are. And this is what's best for my prized creation, the pinnacle of my creation, who I love so much that because of all the brokenness and sin that we experience on varying levels of degrees, I went to that cross to pay for it once and for all so we could all be forgiven and back in relationship with God the way that it was intended to be. And this one gets sensitive and hard. But the reality is, and I want to bring light to it, is there's more heterosexual sin in the world and more in particular inside the church than there is of homosexual sin and all the planet. There's more sin among people who are not transitioning than those who are transitioning. There's more sin that exists with anger and abuse and, and, and hurting God's prized creation of people than there is of someone uh, claiming to be something that they're not. And then we dive into the real particulars about, you know, maybe same-sex attraction or homosexuality. And, and, and I have conversations with people and I'm beginning to learn and understand more about this. 
is someone asked, and this question was asked, it was like, Myron, when, when did you learn to be attracted to girls? And I would say, I don't, I don't really know if I was ever taught that. I think that was just natural in me. And so was someone born with same-sex attraction or was it learned in early childhood development? I'm not entirely sure. And I don't think psychology and science is entirely sure, but it is a reality for some people. And it's a result of the fall and the brokenness of our world and humanity. And there's a predisposition for some people and there's a predisposition for some people for alcoholism. It's on the same playing field. There's a predisposition for violence and abuse to someone else. And, and those are just on the same exact playing field, equal in value, looking of God's eyes. There's not more severe. And we all have to control our desires or impulses. And the thing I want us to know is that your feelings are real, but your feelings are not always reliable of what is true about who you are and what God's intent was for you from the beginning and your origin and your story. And we're trying so hard to gravitate to my identity and who I am and what satisfies my desires. I'm putting quarters in and turning it, trying to feel something. When really God's saying, this is who you are of incredible, extraordinary value. And it's not the desire that's wrong or bad. It's not the desire that's the sin. It's the action, living it out and choosing to live in opposition of what God says is true about his prized creation, all of humanity. And where we land on this topic of who is Jesus or who is God to you, do you believe that you were made on purpose for a purpose and we all have baggage and predispositions and maybe some genetic predispositions to be more drawn to certain desires and sins? That is true about being a human being. But he went to the cross to pay for that because of the brokenness and the evil. And you can be set free from that. And it doesn't mean that your attraction is going to change because someone, I heard someone say this too. Myron, how many, how many uh, counseling sessions or messages would you have to hear before you started to have homosexual attraction? I would say probably it would, infinite. It would, it would never happen. And they say, yeah, well, quit trying to change me. And so you're right. That is true about you. But your actions is your choice. And living in line with the truth of what God says about humanity is what we have to wrestle with. It's a reality for some of us. But this is what God says about you. This is your value. This is your identity. This is what's best and what he wants. And we think that marriage is the be all end all, but really singleness is a gift that the apostle Paul unpacks and says, this is a gift. Living celibate and living signal is a gift from God where you can glorify him and serve him more radically undivided because you don't have a family to consider. And that may be a good thing for you. If that is you, it could be a call that God's having on your life and a gift that he's having on your life. It's not the desire, it's the action. And we're all in control of our actions. And there's so much confusion and chaos and manipulation around words and, and truth and, 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 uh, and who we are and what really defines us that we gotta get back to what he says defines us. And we don't have the right to define it ourselves. And the final thing about marriage that's so beautiful between a man and a woman when they come together is that it was a vehicle for unashamed intimacy. Like when I think about the pornography addictions and all the shame that comes with that of people comparing themselves to these fake airbrushed models and, and then all the Instagram feeds and Facebook posts about their body and their image. And there's this insecurity plaguing, am I beautiful, am I pretty enough? And it's been hijacked to where marriage was designed for you. The only person you were supposed to see naked was your spouse. And you have no comparison 
And it's beautiful and incredible and there's depth of intimacy unlike anything else. And you're unashamed to be completely open and vulnerable. That was a gift. It's been hijacked and robbed. And insecurities and comparison sets in and we don't open up. And, and it's one of the things that comes with living in a broken, fallen world. But it should have been and was intended to be a place for unashamed intimacy and a great picture of the intimacy that we can have with God, not in a sexual way, but in being completely transparent and open about who we are. This is real for my life and not hiding and backing away from it because he's not intimidated or scared by it. It doesn't matter what you've done, what's been done to you or where you are. He loves you right where you are. And you know, basic economics says this. If I told you that this, an iPhone was worth a million dollars, you would look at me and go, you're crazy. But basic economics would say, when does an iPhone become worth a million dollars? When someone's willing to pay a million dollars for it. So when we look at our lives, do you know what price was paid for your life? It was God himself in human flesh. His own son came and paid the price for your life, a life for a life substitution because we deserve death because of sin. But he said, no, you are so incredibly, infinitely valuable because you can't put a value on a life, can you? And God says, I will go there on your behalf so that you can have the life and live the life. And he's asking you to accept that free gift by faith, to get back to who you are, your true identity. And then he's saying, follow me. I know what's best for you. I know what's best for your life. And it's gonna be hard. It's not gonna be natural all the time. It's not gonna be easy. It's gonna get confusing, but you gotta be committed to knowing this is what is best, made in the image of a creator who knows you better than yourself. And this is what he's calling his humanity to, his prized creation to. And so the choice is ours. Who is God to us? Made on purpose for a purpose? Our story, our origin, are we living into that? Or are we not? Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for who you are and what you've done. And because of what you've done, we can accept the gift of forgiveness and, and the shame and the guilt can be gone. But Father, more importantly, I pray that the everyday struggle of waking up and still having those feelings or those predispositions and those desires and a temptation towards whatever sin is our vice, God, you would help us fight. You would help us anchor ourselves in you, what you say about us, what is true. And Father, you'd help us fight that fight. And you'd help us to begin to believe those truths about us that are hard to believe about ourselves and what you say in your word. And God, you would rally us around one another, support and encourage and love and sacrifice and serve like no other group of people would in order for us to fight for our true identity in you. And God, you'd bless us. You'd bless our marriages. You'd bless our lives. You'd bless our careers. You'd bless our, our whole entire uh, uh, life because we're doing it the way in which you are calling us to live our life. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would just guide and inform the helper, come alongside to teach the advocate that we can have the life that we were meant to live. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. -face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. 
You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.